Welcome back, everybody. This is week 47 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. We're still in the Minor Prophets this week, but we have two new voices to hear from. So two prophets you're going to learn from Amos for the most part. We'll do nine chapters of Amos and then one little chapter of Obadiah. But they both have great messages to teach us. In fact, I really think their messages dovetail together in a beautiful way. And uh, I'll try to illustrate that as we go through it. But let me give you a little bit of backstory on both of these prophets. First, let's talk about Amos because he's kind of my favorite. Okay, here's what's great about Amos. He is someone who is called, he lives in the South and he is called to preach up in the North. And he is called to preach there the same time Hosea is preaching in the North and the same time Isaiah is preaching in the South. So that, you know, 20, 30 years right before the scattering that happens when the Assyrians come in, that's when he's preaching. What's really cool about Amos is who he is. So he is called to preach, but he is not a son of prophets. He didn't grow up in this priestly line. He was literally called in a field. He's a shepherd and he'll reference agricultural metaphors and he'll talk about trees and fruit. And he is someone who understands the people. The reason I think that's so important is because Amos's predominant message is, Israel, you have stopped taking care of the poor. You've been so distracted with your idol worship and letting go of your connection with God that you've missed what really being a disciple of Christ is, which is taking care of those who are weak and vulnerable. And he's a shepherd. You guys, this is what he does for a living. He literally guards the weak and the vulnerable. But what's particularly cool about his job is because of his job as a shepherd, he would also need to go into the city. He would need to sell his wares. He would need to sell the wool. Later, he talks about having fruit and orchards. So he's somebody who would get the difference between what it's like to live a life that is humble and poor and what it's like to be among the powerful and the elite. And he has to walk in both worlds, kind of like the Savior did. And I just, it's so, you guys, his message is so good because of who he is. Um, and watch for it. I'll give you lots of cool analogies to it. But when I picture Amos, don't make fun of me for this. I picture Maximus from the movie Gladiator. Now I should say, full disclosure, Gladiator is a rated R movie, but we filter everything in our house through VidAngel. So it takes out all the terrible <laughs> So don't go watch that as a family. But if you've seen it on VidAngel, you know what I'm talking about. He is someone who didn't seek out this job. He didn't want glory. He simply responds to the call and he's been prepared in this humble circumstance to do it. But I think he's someone who always hopes to go home. I think you, you'll hear it. He is someone who is always aching to get back to his fields and back to his sheep, but he, the Lord has called him so he will teach. And it's so good. Oh, you're going to love Amos. Okay. Obadiah is much shorter. We don't know a lot of backstory about Obadiah. We don't even know exactly the time frame. But because of the way he writes his one chapter, it sure seems like he's preaching after Israel has been scattered. So after things have been destroyed, after Jerusalem's even been destroyed, he is talking about his, his message is to the Edomites. So we'll learn all about that when we get to Obadiah. But his message is about you watched this destruction happen to your brothers and you didn't stop them. And then there's some consequences to the Edomites. If you don't remember, Edomites are when Jacob and Esau, remember the two twin brothers? Jacob has the 12 sons and he creates the children of Israel. He, you know, he and his wife create the children of Israel. Esau, his children become the Edomites. So these are basically, you know, kind of cousin tribes who often are fighting, kind of like siblings. You know, they are family, but they often fight. In fact, they're often enemies. And in this situation, the Edomites could have helped the Israelites and those in Jerusalem 
And they stood by and said, no. And so Obadiah has some words for them. Well, the Lord has some words for them and he funnels them through Obadiah and I promise you're going to love it. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. Let's get started, you guys. The shepherding background of Amos comes to the surface right out of the gate in chapter one. This is when he compares the word of the Lord to a lion roaring. And I just love the visual. So if you look into it, it says, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The reason I love this metaphor choice for Amos is he is someone who would have encountered lions. Remember, it's the same way we saw with David, where he had to kill a bear and a lion. He was a shepherd too. He is someone who knows that sound and he knows how, he knows what that sound means for his flock. And that's, I think, exactly what a prophet is, right? They are someone who knows the sound of the Lord. They can hear the still, small, quiet voice of the Lord, and they can hear when the Lord is roaring. What's interesting is no one else can hear it in Amos's day. He's, he's called because the Lord has been roaring and no one hears it. So the Lord calls a prophet to say, amplify what I am doing. They're not catching it. And I just love that understanding because it's going to flow through all of Amos's chapters. He can hear, it reminds me of, remember when we read Jeremiah when he talked about how he almost wanted to stop being a prophet for a season, but there was fire in his bones and he couldn't stop it. That's basically, I think, what's happening with Amos. But his way of learning this message is to hear a lion roar because you know, God speaks to us in our own language. So he teaches Amos in a way that he would immediately understand and he compares it to a lion roaring. And then he warns what's happening. And like I mentioned before, the biggest sin here is not idolatry. That's what we've learned from a lot of other prophets. I really think one of the biggest risks of idolatry is it takes your focus off where you can come closer to God. And where you can come closer to God is in caring for the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. And when they forsake that role, they miss their chance to connect. So it's not so much about idolatry as it is a lack of charity. And he, there's a beautiful, it's expressed in a whole bunch of different ways, but I really love the way it's said in three. So it says, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus. He's going to use that phrase like you've done, you've done a number of offenses, but you actually deserve more punishment than, than I'm going to even give you. That's kind of what you'll see that phrase over and over again. But he says, they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Some key things I would tell you as you study this chapter, watch for the word because and circle it. That's what I did in mind because he's actually teaching you what they did wrong. And I really feel like the beatitudes of the Savior are, are given to us so that we don't fall into these traps, so that we don't have these same consequences. You know, when he says, turn the other cheek and, you know, the meek will inherit the earth and all those kind, kind commandments to soften us, it's so that we don't end up where the Israelites are. But that first example kind of typifies all of them because a threshing instrument is like this big, heavy sled that they would, once they've gathered up the wheat, you know, we've talked about the threshing floor a few times where they'd gather the wheat from the fields, they take it to this big flat stone, and then they would grind it with a big sled. What was interesting is as I studied this a little deeper, I think I was on Wikipedia, I put it in the notes, a lot of them would actually insert stones, little sharp stones onto the bottom of this sled so that it would cut at the wheat and it would break all those, you know, wheat berries out. And it's this incredibly aggressive, violent way to extract something. And I think there are so many incredible parallels when you think about the Savior and what he experienced. When you read this chapter, watch for those parallels. Because I don't think Amos is just teaching us about this situation. I think he's also trying to witness about 
Jesus Christ. And that picture is poignant. Because remember, Gilead is where the balm of Gilead comes from. Oftentimes in the scriptures, the Savior is compared to the balm of Gilead, meaning something that can heal, an ointment that can heal wounds. That's why it's often compared to the Savior himself. So if they're taking this violent threshing instrument and they are destroying the thing that can heal, the thing that can save, uh, that's a metaphor for why they're missing the point why they need to have charity. And that's the message you're going to see resounding throughout the chapter. You'll see it in a few places. But interestingly, what he's doing here, Amos is going to teach all the peripheral, peripheral parts of the children of Israel first. So it kind of reminds me of, if you've ever come into your kids fighting, right? And when you're going to talk to one of the kids first, and you're going to reprimand them, and you're going to talk about what they did wrong, how they could have done it better. And the other kid is kind of sitting sort of smugly on the stairs like, huh? You know? You, maybe you guys don't have the same. This happens to me all the time. And they're kind of like, yeah, mom, get them, you know? And then you get to the end of talking to that kid and you're like, and Sam, I'd like to talk to Eunice. And then Sam's face falls and he's like, dang it. So that's kind of what's happening here. He's going to talk to all the surrounding areas of Israel first, all these different groups that live near Israel. And then he's going to turn his attention on Israel itself and say, and you should have known better. All these other guys didn't have the covenants you had. You should have known better. So that's what you're going to see throughout the chapter. I can't go through it all, but you'll watch some of the things they did wrong. They they, they let people get carried off in captivity. They, they not just like if you look in six, it says because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up. Talking about the enemies of Israel, that they came, they didn't just take the strong men. They didn't just take a few. They took everybody. That means they took the elderly. They took the children. They took women. They they took everyone. And that greed and lack of care for the poor is going to hurt them. So the, warn is, the warning is strong. In nine, you see that they rejected their brotherly covenants and they remembered them not. So this is another thing where they should have cared for people who were nearby and they didn't. Uh, in 11, it gets even stronger. In fact, this one I thought was pretty powerful. He says, because he did pursue his brother. So another because, we got a bunch of these in this chapter because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity. I mean, like they're, they're infighting among the tribes that should be close to each other and they don't have any pity for each other. And then there's this one that's just really poignant. It says, and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. This is, um, I think our prophets have warned a lot about this lately, about holding on to grudges and choosing not to forgive and taking some delight when people who we perceive as our enemies get into struggle. Uh, that's a, a strong warning. Go in the notes. There's incredible quotes from the prophets and apostles about why, remember, beatitudes. Why do we need to forgive all men? Why do we need to show kindness? Why do we need to turn the other cheek and give our cloak? Why do we do that? Because we don't want to be where they are. Um, in 13, it gets a little more selfish in nature because it talks about how they killed the women who were pregnant and the reason they killed them was so they could have more land. So one, that's an atrocious crime just to begin with, but their motive for it was to kill off the next generation so there's no one to inherit, no one to battle them or claim rights. It is a greed that is sinking into their hearts and that's going to cost them. You can tell from the chapter heading of two that this is where he shifts and start talk, starts talking to the kid on the stair, the other one in the problem. He has a couple more verses for Moab at the very beginning where he talks about their big crime was they went in and desecrated the graves of their neighbors. So I just think it's an interesting perspective 
that even though these are enemies of Israel and oftentimes they're in battle with each other, he expects them to show kindness in war. Kindness isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? How there's like a code of honor among soldiers or there should be. That's where they've broken down. They're to the point of social chaos that they don't even follow like the conduct of war anymore. So they've desecrated graves. They're being deliberately unkind. And it just sort of reminded me of the Book of Mormon, how when you see Moroni's battles and all those battles in the Book of Alma, you see all those battles and there is bloodshed and there is probably horrific things that happen, but he does not get bloodthirsty. He does not take advantage of the poor. He does not take, they don't take the spoils. You know, there is, there is an honor in his soldiering that the people in Moab and all these other neighboring cities simply didn't choose to have. And the Lord is calling them out on it. They're not children of the covenant per se. They don't have the same understanding. So he's not going to call them out on breaking the covenant. What he's going to say is, I think it's related to their light of Christ. Like, you know, even if you don't have a covenant and you don't understand my gospel, every one of you has the light of Christ and a conscience to know when you've crossed the line and you're clearly becoming numb to that influence. And he calls them on it. So they're accountable to that level of understanding. And then the rest of the chapter is when he talks to Israel, not just Israel, Judah too. So the North and the South, predominantly he'll talk about Israel because that's who, you know, Amos is called to preach to, but he has messages for both. So he talks about those in Judah. So this is down in Jerusalem where the temple is. They have started to despise the law of the Lord and not keep the commandments. So they're because, why they're going to be in trouble is because they're accountable. They knew the covenant, they knew God's law and they're breaking it. So they're accountable. You go a little bit further and you see in six, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. This is traditionally seen as a reference to usury. So remember when we talked about the law of Moses and there were people who were charging exorbitant interest rates for debts. So the poor would need help. They would give them a small loan and then charge huge interest to the point where they couldn't pay it off. So then they would enslave their children or their wives or that's what he means by a pair of shoes. Like it's this, you're taking, you're treating these people like possessions and you are hurting them on purpose. You're taking advantage of their poor state and that's a wickedness he won't tolerate. So he has big warnings for them. As you go a little bit further, you find out why it's so offensive to God. So if you look in 10, I love the way he teaches. Ah, he's just such a good teacher. He says, also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Egypt, I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. I raised up your sons for prophets. He is reminding them that every one of them has been enslaved. They have all been poor. They have all been cast down and pushed down. And he pulled them out. He redeemed them from that position. He saved them from Egypt. So what that should do is soften them. You know, I know, like when you've been saved from any situation by the Lord, you become so soft to people in that same circumstance. It's one of the things I love about bishops. They are so good at, at echoing the Lord's forgiveness and mercy because they themselves have experienced it, just like you and I have. All of us have experienced the mercy that comes when you truly repent, and they can't wait to give it out, um, to tell others about it. And that's what should have happened with the children of Israel. Their experience being beggars should have helped them be kind. 
it should help us too. I love that talk from Elder Holland, uh, Are We Not All Beggars? You know, he, he echoes King Benjamin's words and says, we're all in a position of want. We've all been saved and helped and redeemed. So we should push that forward to everybody else. That's why the Lord is casting out and being so, he's being so clear about his punishments that will come because they should know better and they're choosing not to. And don't you feel like that when your kids are fighting and you're like, you knew better. I just talked to you about this. And so your consequences are harsher. That's what's happening here as well. So he talks about the result. I love how it's phrased in 13. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. I love this also because of what King Benjamin teaches. He's the one that taught us that if we're in the service of our fellow beings, we're only in the service of God. So that means if we're grinding the faces of the poor, what we're really doing is grinding the face of God. It, it means we are turning our back on one of the most profound ways to come to know God. It's through charity and through taking care of others that you come to know God. I think it's why we're asked to be parents, because that is a position where you have to show charity and forgiveness and compassion forever. And it is somewhere where you come to know God and they're turning their back on it. And so the result is he can't deliver them. They will end up in struggle because they choose to abandon this part of their history and they forget God. In chapter three, Amos makes it clear that his message is not just for Israel, but for the whole, all the children of Jacob, that they all need to know this message, that you only have I known. This is in verse two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Remember, we've been talking about how covenants create a relationship with God. So when we're in a relationship with God and we turn away from it, there is a more severe consequence. That's how it is with our kids too, right? I love, Jack was in YSA last night and he gave this great example. We were talking about how the Lord is so merciful with weakness, but rebellion is different. Rebellion has consequences. And we were talking about the difference. And Jack, who normally doesn't really look up much in class and doesn't participate a lot, he's like, oh, I know. It's kind of like a game. And I'm like, okay, tell me, Jack. And he said, you know, basically if there's somebody who's new to the game and they don't know the house rules or whatever, you're pretty forgiving if they make a mistake. But if somebody who knows how to play the game does that same thing, it's not a mistake. It's called cheating. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what it is. It's a deliberate, they're cheating. They're cheating on a very clear rules and a game that they've already received abundant blessings from and they're cheating. And so he's angry because the consequences for somebody who cheats in a game are much more severe than someone who makes a mistake. And so I love that visual, Jack. Love it. Okay. And you go a little bit further, you'll see in seven, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. You should, you'll probably be really familiar with that verse, but I want you to read it in conjunction with the couple verses that come before, because this is where Amos's, you know, background of being out in the wilderness all the time really comes, it shines. It, he reminds me a little bit of Elder Uchtdorf, who always, you know, uses airplane analogies because that's the language he speaks. Amos speaks the language of nature. And so he talks about nature and he says, like, there's these animals, they make sounds. There's always a purpose to the sound. They, they don't do anything for no reason. And so there's purpose to it. And so then he says, God is basically making a sound and he will never allow this big consequence to happen without making a sound. And just because you guys can't hear that lion roaring, know that I can. And I feel like that's what conference was, right? That's when the prophets stand and say, let me tell you the roaring that I have heard. As I've been praying and fasting and worrying about what words to choose to say today, let me tell you what I heard that you might not hear. 
And what I love is the promise of a prophet is if you listen to their witness that this is something the Lord is concerned about, and then you act on it, or even just pray about it, your ability to hear the roar increases. That's why the prophets are teaching us so much about how to hear him, because their goal is not to just be our only gateway, right? We know the three gateways to hear the word of the Lord. One is modern prophets and understanding modern revelation. The second is our own revelation. And the third is the words of the scriptures, other prophets. So when those three work together, we, we get added light. So that's what you're going to see in these verses. Amos is trying to help them understand how to hear it for themselves. So he talks in eight, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? He's like, you guys, I can hear it so clearly. Listen to me and come. I also love the JST translation that happens in verse seven, because this is where you learn that it's not that he will always, what he's saying is it's until. The Lord will not do anything until he reveals it to his prophets. So there's no like, you'll know if you're listening to the prophet and you're you're coming to conference and you're studying his words, there will be no surprise prophecies, especially in these latter days. You will know it will be a resounding roar because you've come to know and come to hear him. And I love that he gets that as well. When you flip the page, you see what prophets do. 10 prophets help us gather. When you go into, or maybe that's nine. In 10, it talks about how they know what is right. I kind of loved this little concession in here. So he's basically saying there are some people who don't know what's right. And that's a prophet's job. It's the same thing we see in the Doctrine and Covenants that says, you know, people can't find the church. They don't know where to find it. So we have to help direct them. That's one of the roles of a prophet. When you go into a, in 11, he talks even more. He talks about how they will warn you of dangers that are coming because you might not be familiar with the sound of a lion. If you don't come from that neck of the woods, you might not know what that sound is. The same way if you've ever been, you know, out and about in your neighborhood and you hear a weird, super loud, like construction sound, Sometimes you think there's some natural disaster happening because you're not familiar with the construction sounds and it takes you a second to orient yourself. So a prophet is someone who can hear that and know what it is and teach it to you. And then he talks about how their job is to protect. And I even think a little bit to mourn when people don't hear. And he uses this really vivid image. He talks about how the children of Israel are basically like a lamb that is caught in the mouth of a lion and the shepherd is trying to rescue them and all he can get out is an ear or a leg or like you can just almost hear that this must be a vivid memory for Amos. At least that's how I read it, that he's probably experienced this exact thing where he has a lamb that he loves and his whole job was to take care of that lamb. And when it strays and gets into the mouth of a lion, he tries to rescue and can't. That's what's happening to the children of Israel. They're going to be scattered, lost. He the Savior can't pull them back in. They've gone too far. And Amos's job is to warn them about that. And he uses a powerful personal image to get that message across. I just think it teaches me how to be a better teacher, that I'm supposed to use my life experiences and my understandings to teach and that the Lord's, that the Spirit will work through that channel in powerful ways. In chapter four, Amos shines a big spotlight on that same issue, that they are oppressing the poor. So if you look in verse one, hear this word, ye kind. So it's calling them cows. Like these are people who just mill about and feed themselves and don't care about anything around them. He says, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. They're not even aware. You know, it's that kind of Marie Antoinette situation, like let them eat cake. It's this like complete unawareness of the troubles in their land. And it kind of reminds me of the Zoramites, you know, in the Book of Mormon, how they get really 
they think they're being righteous. They think they are living higher, but they're missing the point that to live higher means to live like God. And God never leaves the poor behind. He never leaves the needy behind. They're supposed to bring people up with them. That's what it means to be a child of the covenant. The job of the covenant is to be a light to others so that they all can gather in. And the children of Israel have lost that. They've missed that point. And so he has some consequences for them. Now you can read the rest of this chapter. This talks about all the different like series of unfortunate events that happens and it gets starts a little bit small and then it gets progressively worse as they don't hear. The phrase you're gonna see over and over again is that yet ye have not returned unto me. So he gives them one consequence and they don't come back to him. And then he gives them a slightly harsher consequences and they don't come back. Like there's a famine and then there's a drought and then there's sickness and then there's war and people die. And it's just this, you know, domino effect. I think what was most powerful to me, I think because I had just read um, Bishop Kaze's, uh conference talk from this last October where he talked about stewardship versus ownership. My, my friend Gamelin has a book about this, but it's this idea of you are a steward of these things. You don't own these things. And when you choose not to care for your stewardship, the Lord removes it. So it's not that he, the Lord is giving them bigger and bigger punishments. It's not like he's making the whip harder and harder. What he's doing is he's pulling the stewardship. He's saying, you didn't care for this. I have to remove it now. So it feels like a punishment to the children of Israel, but really what it is, is it's a removal of a blessing. The same way when you talk to your kids and they make big mistakes, you're really not punishing them most of the time. You're removing a blessing. <laughs> Their whole life is a blessing you've provided for them. So when you give them a consequence, like maybe they don't have their curfew as much as it used to be, or maybe they have to sit and hang out for a minute. They used to have freedom to move about the cabin and now they don't. That is a blessing that they didn't even realize was not theirs. It, you, does that make sense? It's a stewardship that you've granted them. And when they don't care for their stewardship, you pull it away, which I feel like it almost creates a vacuum effect and hard things come. So when the Lord removes the rain, which is this great blessing, when he pulls that away, the hardship that comes is drought and famine. I, I don't think he wanted to hit them with drought and famine as much as he was saying, I'm going to take this blessing away. Please learn what it feels like to be without me, what it feels like to be without this blessing and turn back to me. The same way you hope that your kid, after being grounded for two weeks, will come back and say, I'm sorry, that won't happen again. Can I please have those blessings back? I want to take care of my stewardship. That's what I see when I read through chapter four. So, so don't see it like, a whole bunch of punitive, you know, the Lord coming out angry. I think it's much more about stewardship and ownership. And if you want more guidance on that, go back to conference this last October and read Elder Kaze's message. It's so good, you guys. In the last few weeks, the church has released more of those Book of Mormon videos. And now we're into Third Nephi, where you see the Savior come. But I, what I was watching this week is the ones before that, right before the Savior comes, the time of great destruction that happens. And you see like windstorms and floods coming downstairs and people trying to hold their families together. And, and you see what's left, right? After this great time of storm, there are some who are left and they are battered and broken and crying and in struggle. That's what I see when I read chapter five. Because four is all about those destruction sequences. All those consequences of those blessings being pulled away hit hard in four. There was loss of life. There was famine. There, people had to leave their city to try and find water in other places. Destruction happens in four. What happens in five is the people who are left. And Amos goes in to teach these people who are left. And the message is so good. 
In fact, it's all about good. So I want you to go in the verses. You'll see if you look in four, his invitation to those who are broken, wounded, and scared is to seek God. He says it so many times, that word seek, I highlighted over and over again in chapter five. Thus saith the Lord God unto the house of Israel, seek ye me and ye shall live. This is the same thing Alma teaches us, look to God and live. It's this message of all of these blessings can get pulled away from you, turn to me. There is only one way that they can find help and strength and the support they need and they've got to turn. And so that's Amos's big message. He says, stop going to Bethel, these places where they've set up idols and other worship services. Again, I think some of their worship services were patterned after good ones. They just have distorted them. You know, Bethel is a holy place. That's a place we've studied in the Old Testament, but they've distorted the worship that's happening there. So he invites them to seek the Lord. Come back to the basics in six. Seek the Lord and ye shall live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. There will be none to quench it, quench it in Bethel. No matter how holy that ground is, if you're not, if you're not living the commandments, if you're not, if you don't have that mighty change of heart that the Lord wants you to have, it won't help you to stand on that holy mount, right? That doesn't help you. So he's saying, leave off all of that and come back. And seven, ye who turn judgment into wormwood and leave off righteousness. You've abandoned the poor, you've you've turned away kindness, you've left off righteousness, come back seek him in eight. He reminds him who it is they're seeking. This is the maker of the stars. This is the creator of the universe. Come back to the one who can save. And don't you think in a position where they've seen so much destruction and pain and loss, that that would be such a, a message of hope, right? That look back to the one who's bigger than all of this destruction. Look at the stars and remember who made them and come back to him. And I love what you see in 11. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor and you take from him the burdens of the wheat, you've built these houses, basically saying like, here's where you went wrong. Instead of helping the poor, you took from the poor and you built up houses with that wealth and now you're never going to get to live in them. That way of living didn't give you what you wanted. Your houses are getting destroyed. Come seek good. So if you look in 12, they were taking bribes. They're turning aside the poor. Again, that resounding message of, You've missed the mark. If there is no charity in you, you are not mine. So he says, seek good. In 14, seek good and not evil that ye may live. This whole verse, like go in the footnotes, you guys, there were so many beautiful verses that tied to this verse because it's this invitation to seek goodness. When you are in struggle and you know, even if you know you've made the mistakes and you're off course, his answer is care for the poor. Do good anywhere you can. Don't wait to be asked. In fact, if you look, it's like, don't be, you won't be compelled in all things. That verse is in there. The one that's about being anxiously engaged in a good cause is in there. He's saying, don't wait until a prophet commands you to do something. Go and do good. I feel like that's what conference was all about as well. It's this invitation, do good wherever you are. Put goodness out there and let that gateway of good bring you to Christ. Because where we're going to find Christ is in doing good. That's how they'll come to him. It's not studying him in the books. It's not being in a synagogue. All those places are wonderful. But where you really will find him is among the poor and among the needy and in those places of service. And now they're living in a place of destruction. So there's all these opportunities to serve. What I think is really powerful about that message is this is a place of destruction, which means all these people are probably hurting. All of them probably feel deficient and that they don't have the resources they need to serve. You know, have you ever been in a situation where your life is so hard 
And then you get a new calling that is really big. And you think, why? <laughs> why now? I don't have anything left to give. I can't. There's nothing in me. And then you learn when you show up, as limited as you are, you show up, then the Lord fills you. Because when you think about the Lord's life, his mortal life, where was he? He was among the poor and the cast out and the downtrodden. That's where you find God. That's where you come to know God. And I just think it's always this invitation. Humble yourselves, submit yourselves to me, show up for this calling, do the best you can, and let me fill you with something that will last so much more than what you thought you needed. I could testify that in a dozen different ways from just the last five years. So I, I love that that's Amos's message as well. Seek good um, and then see what the Lord can do with it. I also think it's cool what he says in 18. So this is where he warns them, don't wait for the second coming. You ever felt like that now? Like there's all this pervasive destruction and things are a mess and our society is kind of a mess. And you think, couldn't the Savior just come? <laughs> couldn't we just wrap this all up? Um, I think he's warning us about that train of thought. So he says, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? Meaning if you yourself aren't ready for the Lord to come, if your heart isn't helping in Zion and united with Zion, if you're not out serving the poor and doing your ministering and taking care of your callings. And if you're not doing those things, you're not ready for the Lord to come. So go do those things. Go do good. And that will help facilitate the day of the Lord coming. It is not something we're supposed to sit back and be like, oh, it'll be so great when he comes and cleans up this whole mess. Because the, the point is that we will be changed by the time he gets here, that we will be Zion in our hearts, no matter how much destruction is around us. So I love that reminder. Don't just wait do good, be anxiously engaged in a good cause. Um, and then he talks about how this is offending him. So if you look in 21, 22, 23, basically he's saying to them, if you don't have charity, none of the rest of this matters. And you see that in the New Testament as well, but it's this invitation of all your feasts, all your ceremonies, all your attending church, all you doing your callings, all those things, they don't matter if you have no charity. And so he is urging them to shift. So he says, they offend me. All those things you're doing, they offend me. And then 24, but let judgment run down as waters. Judgment and justice can kind of be interchanged. It's also an extension of mercy. So he's asking them to show fairness in these small ways. Show judgment, be, show fairness in small ways. But the big ways, the rivers need to be righteousness. That mighty stream is righteousness. Show abundant mercy. When Michelle Craig spoke in conference, I had to write it in my margins because I loved it. She said, um, chapter six begins with a very famous verse that says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. He's talking to the Samaritans, which are, well, in this area, it's the capital city of Northern Israel. So basically in any time of war, it's the poor and the downtrodden who, who take the big ramifications of war, right? And sometimes the elite don't even recognize or appreciate what's happening. And I think that's who he's talking to now. So Amos is talking to those who are at ease, thinking they are connected, they are of the covenant, they're going to be just fine, and they can live a good life. In fact, if you go through these verses, it talks about their good life, that they live in these palaces, they're laying on couches, and, you know, it has this kind of eat, drink, and be merry vibe to it. And he talks about how he hates it. I just thought this was a cool way to say it in eight. I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. I think what we know about the character of Christ is when he chose to condescend, when he chose to be born 
to Mary and Joseph in a little humble city of a carpenter's family and be in a stable, you know, like he lived his life to show that he will be with us. And when we create separation from the people who need us most, there are consequences. And that's who he's warning about. And I think it's interesting because so many of us, right, are hoping and praying for excess, for abundance in worldly things. I'm right there with you guys. Like, it is hard. But I think what you want to remember is power comes from being in a position of vulnerability, at least spiritual power. Michelle Craig talked about this in conference where she basically said, I wrote it in my margins. She said, living in convenience does not bring power. So when we are pushing back and pleading with the Lord in our prayers at night to take away whatever is hard, <laughs> sometimes those prayers are not answered because he knows that for us to stay close to him, we need that opposition in all things. We need those difficulties to keep us humble. So he here he invites Zion to choose to humble themselves. When they don't choose it, they get the consequences of that, which is that pretty soon the Assyrians are going to come in and wipe them out. So he says in 13, you're getting comfortable. It says, ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, have we not taken to us our horns by our own strength? So again, like we learned from Elder Kasse, this is shifting from stewardship to ownership. I earned this. I got this. I don't, this isn't just wealth, you guys. This is anything we rest our confidence on. Even things like a testimony, right? If you start to believe that you got this, you know, I did all the work and I earned this or, you know, it can, we can shift into a position of pride pretty fast. And so he's warning about that. I think that phrase, you rejoice in a thing of not, is pretty powerful. Because I think sometimes I do this, right? We celebrate. I have to watch myself with object lessons sometimes in this vein. Because you guys know me. I love object lessons. And I'm teaching my kids in object lessons all the time. But sometimes I'm so fixated on the fun part of the object lesson that I forget to actually teach the message. <laughs> or I just don't do it very well, you know, because we're just taking pictures. We're trying to, and I have to, I have to remember that I can't rejoice in the object lesson. The object lesson is a tool to help them know the gospel. So if I'm not actually connecting those dots, then I'm I'm rejoicing in a thing of not. Is it good? Is it happy? Yes. Is it a good memory? Yes. All those good things. But it is not what will last. If my lessons aren't helping my kids have a solid testimony of Jesus Christ, then I'm rejoicing in a thing of not, and it won't last. So he warns them about that and then says, behold, if you don't change, I'm going to bring another nation and they're going to conquer you. In 30 years, that will happen. And I think it's interesting that he's over and over again trying to warn them that this will happen, both to those who are, you know, in desperate times in chapter five and those who are feeling pretty solid in chapter six. The warning is the same to both. Look to God and live. These last three chapters of Amos are a series of five visions that he has. And you can go into the notes and learn more or even into the Institute Manual and learn a little bit more about what we think these visions mean. Um, and there's a few different ones. He has a vision of grasshoppers or locusts infesting things. He has a vision of a great fire that comes and even consumes the water. And then a, a vision of a plumb line. There's more that come in the next chapter. But in this chapter, you see all three of those. And there's teaching us specific things about the future of Israel, that they're going to get cut down, but they'll regrow, that... The fire one is talking probably about the scattering and the damage that will occur when they are scattered. And then the plumb line is focused more on God's careful justice. I loved this phrase. I can't remember who I read it from, to be honest. But that this idea of a plumb line, this very careful and exact justice means I think God will give us as much grace and mercy as he possibly can. But there will be a line. 
and and you have to be aware that he is a God of justice and mercy. So I love that visual of the plumb line as well. Also, because I just love my level maker. And that's what I think of when I think of a plumb line. Um, there's also this cool interaction that happens with a priest. So basically a priest comes, his name is, what's his name? Amaziah. He comes to the king and says, there's this prophet that's making this noise that says, we're going to get destroyed. You need to get him out. I thought this was kind of interesting because in other places in the Old Testament, we've seen this happen and they try to kill the prophets, right? I mean, that's why they got thrown into, that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into the fire. It's why Daniel went into the lion's den because people were envious of their position and they wanted to get rid of them. So they tried to kill them. In this one, it's almost like a, a dismissiveness, an annoyance. He treats Amos almost like this annoyance, you know, like a, a, something he doesn't even want to have to listen to. So he tells the king, you should push him back to his own place. Remember, he's not from the north. He's from the south. So he's like, just just get rid of him. Tell him he, he can't be here anymore. And I just think Amos's response is so Maximus. You know, like, this is where he sounds like Gladiator. Russell Crowe comes through in these verses where he says, basically, I, I didn't ask for this gig. <laughs> I just love it. It's in verse 14. I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. He heard the Lord. It's a first vision type of moment for Amos. You know, I, I don't mean to overextend here, but he he didn't seek out this calling. Have you ever felt like that in your callings? That when you get pushback from people and you're like, I didn't sign up for this. I was asked and I'm doing the best I can. And I just think his response is so strong. It is courageous. It is, there's dignity in this moment. Because what he's saying to that Amaziah is like, I'm not here about you. I am here because God put me here. Whereas Amaziah is a priest and thinks he has some kind of right to hear the word of the Lord. Amos knows the Lord, word of the Lord. He's heard the roar of the lion and he will respond. And so it doesn't matter how much, this is a Daniel moment, right? It doesn't matter what this guy says. He, he's like, I'm going to speak and I'm going to speak here because this is what the Lord has called me to do. And I think that's how we have to show up in our callings, in our families, whatever your sphere of influence is, whatever your stewardship is, show up and trust in the dignity that comes with saying, I was called to this work. I've been set apart to do it. I'm doing the best I can. I, I'm going to speak. And that's, there's power in those like, ooh, holy ground moments, right? And what is so fun about this is at the end of the chapter, he reverses it. So basically says to Amaziah, I know you don't want me to prophesy about Israel anymore. So instead I'm going to prophesy directly about you. And he, he warns Amaziah that he's going to get carried away captive. His wife is going to get captured. His children are going to die. Like it becomes very personal. And you could read this as like a, ah, 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 you know, but this is Amos. He's a shepherd, a quiet, dignified prophet of God. I don't think this is a retribution kind of moment. I think this is him saying, you're not hearing me. When I say Israel's going to get destroyed, you're picturing this big, you know, sweeping thing that won't impact you. I want you to know that this is going to hit your family. When I warn you about the destruction of Israel, it's going to hit your wife and your kids and your property, all of it. Please hear me. I just think that's what the prophet does for us too, right? It's not just a message to the church. It's a message to us individually. Help your family. I need you to hear the word of the Lord because your family needs you. You need the revelation that the Lord is trying to give you, so hear him better. It's not just about the gathering and Zion, what makes the gathering and Zion happen is because individually we realize that these prophecies are about us and that honoring God's commandments bring blessings to us and our family, 
So I think it's Amos's way of making this very personal. I just wish it had worked. Chapter eight is where you see the vision of the fruit. And it's this basket of summer fruit, which if you've ever like been to Costco and bought a ridiculous amount of mangoes or, and then you just sit there and watch them rot on your counter because you should have known you could never consume that many mangoes. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I definitely have. And that's, that's what he's picturing. It's not supposed to be this beautiful harvest. It's supposed to be, it's not being consumed. That fruit's not being used. And that's where the problem comes in. Because remember, the children of Israel were given the covenant, given all this knowledge and this understanding so that they could take it to the world. And instead, they're keeping it for themselves. They're pulling in. It's the same thing that happens to me when I start to resent my callings. I, you know, like you start to think, my own family needs me. I can't do this anymore. You know, like my own family's falling apart. I can't go to mutual tonight. Or I can't show up for YSA because my family needs me. And there are times, of course, when that is actually true. But most of the time, what he's saying is like, I, I am producing so much fruit on you. You don't even see it. Do you remember in Jacob 5 when we were talking about the olive trees and we learned that those who don't give of their fruit actually weaken? The same thing happens with real trees that you see outside. If you don't pluck the fruit at the harvest time, they actually get worse. They get insects. They get birds who attack. They, you have to use the fruit. And when you use the fruit, the promise is your branch will be healthier. You'll produce better. So as I show up for my callings, even though my house is a mess, my family feels like it's falling apart, I get revelation and insights all the time. That happens to me all the time. I'll go to YSA and I'll get an answer to a prayer from something someone says or something, a scripture I'd never read the same way. And it helps me at home. And that's what you have to have faith in, right? So that's what he's warning them about is, you're trying to hoard this fruit and it's just rotting on the counter. And there are consequences to that. The stewardship is going to shift, right? So he talks about what's going to happen, that the, he'll forget things, that they will forget their connection with God. They've, let, they've stopped listening to the poor like in four, that they make, it, they make the land to fail, um, that when in five they talk about how when the Sabbath comes around, they're kind of like checking their watch, like, can we get this over with? You know, their ceremonies, their holy days, they're trying to rush through them so that they can get to the commerce days where they can sell things. You know, they, they've begun to completely forget God and to resent him a little bit. And he says, surely I will never forget any of their works. So in six, it's that same phrase. You're forgetting the poor. You're selling them off for the worth of a pair of shoes. And I will never forget their works. That's the promise in seven. And then you see the consequences. This was such a cool visual to me because he basically says, he reminds them of how he pulled them out of the flood in Noah's day and how he pulled them out of the flood or the waves crashing down in the day of Pharaoh. And now this time he can't. Uh, they, they're going to experience the flood. They're going to experience death and destruction and loss where they were people who were supposed to get delivered because they were not obedient and they forgot God. The waters crashed down on them this time. And I think it pains the Lord. The same way we learned from Enoch that he weeps when he thinks about the people who are going to be destroyed in the flood. These are his children. He is going to mourn their loss. But this is the consequence they're choosing. So he talks about what will happen, 11 and 12. There's going to be a famine in the land, and it's not going to be a famine of thirst or of bread. It's going to be a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. There will not be a prophet in this area in Israel for hundreds of years, right? Not till John the Baptist comes. There will not be the word of God. And then even after Jesus and his apostles are gone, now you have all the way, you know, till the restoration where there's a famine of the words of God. And the result of a famine of revelation is 
people run about to and fro. That's what you're going to see in 12. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Doesn't that sound like the apostasy to you? Like in our own personal apostasies, when we lose our connection to God, we start to seek out all kinds of other sources. I just think this is really interesting because I do this. You know, have you ever been in a situation like in a business setting? I've had this a few times in my business work where something falls through, things don't work. And then the person who I was working with doesn't explain why it fell through. So then I start to write my own narrative about what I think may have happened. I start to like concoct a story. You do this with relationships sometimes sometimes too, where you start to create a narrative because there's not enough information. And so you concoct and you get bitter and angry because you assume there must have been, you know, like your, your brain can come up with pretty creative things. That's what happens with the gospel. They, in this attempt to go to and fro to try and find truth, they end up picking up all kinds of falsehood and the doctrine becomes corrupted and there is a famine of the words of God. Thank goodness for the time of the restoration. Aren't you so grateful that we live today where that famine has been lifted and there, there is like a bounty of the words of God? Chapter 8 made me grateful for that. Do you remember when we were studying about right before the exodus out of Egypt, there's the Passover. And so it's that last plague where all the firstborn are going to be killed. And so the Lord gives them really clear instructions through Moses that they're supposed to go through these steps and they're going to kill a lamb and they're going to stay in their homes and they're going to paint the blood of the doorposts and that, you know, so that there's this, as the destroying angel passes by, it will pass right by their house. That's the visual he uses to teach. And it's a strong one. So if you go in chapter nine, you'll see that he basically is saying, I'm coming right by your house and there's nothing on the doorposts. Your obedience is gone. Your charity is gone. And there's nothing to mark that this is a house of God anymore. So the destroying angel can't pass by. It has to stop. It has to seek out and it has to destroy. I. It sounds so harsh at first. And then you look back at all the times they've been warned and all the times they had prophets among them. I mean, even just right here, they've got Hosea and Amos teaching at the same time in the same place and people won't hear. And they won't paint the doorposts. And so he says, you leave me no choice. So the scattering will happen. Then he warns about the earth melting, all the consequences that are going to happen. You can go in the notes and learn more about this phase of destruction that will happen and the phase of apostasy that will happen. And then he begins to speak about hope. And he talks about how he'll sift the house of Israel. He'll make sure that every good grain is kept. And there will be a cleansing. But if this is the wheat and the tares, right? He's going to make sure that every goodness is kept. And then he talks about how the sinners will have to die by the sword. This cleansing will happen and how he will come and close up the breaches. So that's in 11. In that day, so latter days, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will close up the breaches. All those false doctrines, all that misunderstanding, all the misguided temple attempts that happen in the interim between this time and, you know, Joseph Smith's time, all those misguided attempts will get corrected. He's going to close up the breaches and I will raise up his ruins. I will build it as it was in days of old. He's going to rebuild this to me when you, in fact, on the sides, I have restoration written because that's what restoration means, right? If you think of someone restoring a painting or a sculpture, it's this painstaking process of layer by layer. I'm going to take out what shouldn't be there and I'm going to put back the original intent of the artist or the author. I'm going to restore to its former glory and beauty and brightness what has been there all along, but has been muted by so much dirt and debris and scarring that you can't see it. So that's the restoration to me. It's like an art restore, an art restorer 
doing a great piece. That's a promise. And then, of course, you see the consequences come out in 13. But all of this hinges on taking care of the porch. The reason this can happen in the latter days is because Zion will come. And Zion means one heart, one mind, that you take care of the poor, you take care of each other. The best visual I can give you that I learned peripherally this week that was of the Savior in their Nephi. This is in 17, when he comes to the people and he's been preaching with them and he's about to leave. In fact, he says, I've got to go do this other work. I have to visit the 10 tribes, right? This is what he says in the verses. And he looks at the people and they're weeping because they want him to stay. And in that moment, what does he do, right? He softens. Not that he was ever hard, but his heart is compassionate towards them. So he changes his plan. He is the good Samaritan in that moment who had somewhere else to be, but sees someone on the side of the road who needs his help. And so he stops and does what he can. And that's what, that's what this message is. When the Savior stays with those people, he doesn't just stay, he heals. You know, this is when one by one he heals. This is when the prayers happen and the angels come and he enriches, he heals, he fills them up before he has to leave again. That's what I think charity is. That's what I think they were missing. And it's what I think the Lord was trying to teach me this week, where he has stopped going through all the motions and find ways to do good, to choose to do good. And you'll find me there. When you choose to serve, when you choose to help, even when you feel depleted, you will find me there. Come, come back. And that's the message of Amos to me. It's a, it's a powerful one. I hope you love studying it. You're going to have to forgive this, but I have to use a football metaphor to teach you over. <laughs> this, this is what the Spirit taught me. Remember, He teaches me in my own language. So if you don't know this about me, I am a Buckeye fan. My whole family were Buckeye fans because Jason and I met at BYU, got married, and then immediately moved out to Ohio and went to Ohio State. So by default, we are Buckeye fans and we're sort of Michigan haters, <laughs> which I realize is not being a good disciple of Christ, but it just comes with the territory. So our kids know songs about Michigan. We joke about Michigan all the time. It's really fun to watch Jason because he does not like Michigan, obviously, except certain moments. So when Michigan is playing somebody outside of the Big Ten, Jason will cheer for Michigan. Like, And I always kind of laugh about it. Like, you always talk about how you hate Michigan. And he's like, I know, but they're part of the Big Ten. And what we really care about is our conference. <laughs> and I love the visual of that for this because this is what's happening. So in Obadiah, he is coming, this is post-destruction. So he's looking back on the destruction phase of Jerusalem and saying, to the children of Edom, meaning this like neighboring community that has always battled against the children of Israel. They've been rivals since the days of Jacob and Esau. <laughs> but, you know, they are the Buckeyes and Michigan. That's what they are. But he's saying in this moment, you should have realized you're part of a bigger conference. I get it. You guys have enmity towards each other. But in this moment when the children of Israel were in misery, like they were, they were getting destroyed and in pain. And the Edomites were right next to them. And where they could have swept in and said, let us help, they chose to stand back. In fact, they kind of took advantage of the situation. So if you go through the verses, that's what he's calling them on. He, Obadiah is sent to teach the Edomites. That's the only chapter we have about Obadiah. So I don't know if he taught other people, but when he taught the people of Edom, he said, you should have helped. You should have helped save them. So he's look in the verses, if you look in 10, there was violence against Jacob and they were going to get cut off. And in that day, thou stoodest on the other side, right? This is whenever there is a battle or a rivalry, I don't mean in a sports way, but like when we say, well, I didn't cause this mess, so I'm going to stand back here. You're like, I, 
I'm not technically obligated to help because I didn't make this mess happen. My kids do this to me all the time. You know, like one of them will be gone for the whole day and I'll say, okay, guys, it's time to do kitchen jobs. And they'll be like, well, I wasn't here all day. <laughs> like, like that gives them immunity from helping clean the house. That's kind of what they're saying is, hey, this isn't my fight. And so they stand to the side and they watch. And then it gets worse because not only do they watch, but they loot. So when the children of Israel are literally being carried off and those pregnant mothers are getting killed and, you know, like all that atrocity is happening, the Edomites swoop in and they take what's left over. In fact, some of the verses talk about how they, he often will call them brother because remember, they're from that same conference. They are from, their Jacob and Esau are brothers. They should know better. They're all, you know, in that line. And so he's calling them on it saying like, this is your conference. You should have cared for your brother. I understand you guys are rivals and you don't get along, but you should have stepped in. Remember, that's what the story of the Good Samaritan is. He's a Samaritan. He is no way going to be helpful to somebody from the Israelites, but he stops. Even when the Levites and other people don't stop, he stops because he doesn't let the rivalry between their teams get in the way. He says, hey, we're all part of the same conference, so I'm going to help you. I'm going to take you to an inn. I'm going to make sure you're paid for that's what he's calling them on. So when you go through the verses, you'll see what they did, that they rejoiced when the children of Israel fell apart, that they waited by the gate and watched people, watch the enemy come in and they didn't stop or lend a hand, that they came in and they looted things. It even says that some people were left behind, like some of the Israelites were left behind and they turned them in so that they could get their property, get their stuff. This is a level of, of, of standoffishness that will earn them retribution from the Lord because this is their brothers. They should have known better. They should have let their stupid rivalry go so that they could help. Even if the Israelites never did that for them, right? It, we, don't, we don't show kindness to our enemy because our enemy was nice to us once. We show kindness to our enemy because we love God and because God commands you to love your enemies and do good to them that use you and despitefully hurt you, you know, like all those phrases. That's what they should have done, and they didn't. So their, their consequence will be they're going to be swept off. They're going to end up in the same mess that Israel's in. They're going to get the same treatment they got. Uh, it's the golden rule kind of in reverse. They're going to get the same consequences. Um, and it, then it ends in this interesting place. So it says, But upon Mount Zion, this is verse 17, shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. I think what he's trying to say is Edomites, down the road, a long way down the road, there will be a gathering that will happen. And the children of Israel's city is going to get built up again. Yours will not. In fact, their lands are going to get inherited by the children of Israel. And I think it's easy to read this and think that we showed you, you know, like if you can get that tone, but this is the Lord speaking through his prophets. So I don't think that's the tone. I think it's more, we're all in the same conference. When the children of Israel and the house of Jacob are gathered, that's the whole house. If there are any remnants of the Edomites anywhere, they're going to be part of this, you know, because Abraham is their ancestor too. They're going to be part of this great gathering. They will be brought back home. There will be a time of peace. But for the most part, this next many, many, many centuries will be hard because of their choices. And I think, isn't it interesting that that's kind of the same message? We can choose to care for the poor and we will reap blessings. We can choose to push back against the poor like Amos warned about, and then we get the consequences. The same thing happens with Obadiah, where he is basically saying to them, when you aren't the cause of the trouble, but you stand by and let the trouble just happen, you are equally complicit and there are consequences. 
So I just love that. Where it ends is a really powerful verse. We're going to talk about the object lessons too, but he says there will be saviors on Mount Zion that will come. To me, when I read that, I see that like, you know, that, that means the latter days when the work is done and when we have brought, you know, that's a temple and family history verse where he's talking about that you can be a savior on Mount Zion when you gather on both sides of the veil. And I think that applies to any descendants that are left of the Edomites and any descendants that are left of Jacob's family. Those two brothers and all their posterity will also be gathered in and it will happen because of the saviors on Mount Zion. So don't you love that that's the end of it? It's this restoration of ordinances and promises that happens through their descendants that will bring these two warring tribes back to that same an understanding that we're all in the same conference. We're all on the same team. Let's gather together. So good, you guys. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.